Welcome to Unfolding Words. My name is Antracia Moorings, and this is my weekly podcast aimed at sharing biblical truth to offer light for your walk and life for your soul. This is week four of the Ruth study. We're going to be talking about marriage and the Messiah. God believes in happy endings too. So again, thank you if you've been walking on this journey with me for the past four weeks. If this is your first time tuning in, you can still join us. The prior weeks are available on the podcast and my website at unfoldingwords.com. And you can purchase the Bible study workbook at amazon.com. It's called Harvest of Kindness, a Bible study of Ruth. And I'll leave a link in the show notes for you. So this week, we are going to see everything that we've been building up to come into consummation. So if you didn't see the hand of God before, it is very clear in this chapter. God weaves a bitter start into a happy ending. And if you ever wonder, does God believe in happy endings? This book of the Bible will prove to you that he does indeed believe in happy endings. So the first thing we find out is that Boaz sat down at the city gate. In the last chapter, Ruth came to him asking for marriage because he was their family's kinsman redeemer. He obliged, but there was a plot twist. There was someone closer who could actually redeem Ruth. So he goes to the city gate to get this business ironed out. So Boaz, being about his business, like he told Ruth he would, heads down to the city gates. The city gate in the ancient Near East times was the center of social life, the social hub of the city, basically. People pass through the city gate on their way to the fields or the threshing floors. The gate was like a marketplace of their time. We see this in Second Kings chapter 7 and 1. It was a place where prophets would assemble and speak. We see this in 1 Kings chapter 22 and 10, and it was the location of city elders and kings where they made legal ruling. So whatever was going down was going to happen at the city gate. When Boaz comes and presents the situation before the city elders, he is acting in accordance with the procedures for the Leverite law that are outlined in Deuteronomy chapter 25. I love that Boaz follows through on his promise to redeem Ruth, and he does it right away. So he has to negotiate with the other relative, who, by the way, is never named. Never named because he is not the important figure in this book. He has to negotiate with the other relative for the right of redemption of Ruth. The scene takes place at the city gate with the 10 of the elders serving as witnesses for this transaction. What happens in the Bible never happens like in a boardroom meeting or in isolation. There's always going to be a team of witnesses around. They're going to vouch for what happened. What transpires at the city gate between Boaz and the elders resembles this legal procedure. So in that scenario, when a man refuses to fulfill his duty as a brother-in-law or the next of kin, The widow is to bring his refusal to the attention of the elders who will summon him for questioning. And then if the brother is persistent in his refusal, the widow would pull off his sandal and spit in his face, shaming him for failing to uphold his duty. So that's how it was outlined to go down. That's not exactly how it goes down in the book of Ruth. 
In this situation, the closer relative is not shamed for his refusal, maybe because he wasn't a, a close of a relative as a brother would be. But he does remove his sa- he does remove his sandal to symbolize passing the right of redemption to Boaz. So when Boaz comes and presents this deal to the other kinsman redeemer, his focus is on the land. He doesn't mention Ruth in the beginning. So a redeemer was responsible for buying land to keep it in the family, according to the book of Leviticus chapter 25. The man initially agreed to buy the land and redeem it without knowing about Ruth. And he probably thought that this was a great investment to have this land. And this talk of land we mentioned before points back to the book of Genesis and God's promise to Abraham. The promise of land was always tied to blessings. God said to Abraham, to your offspring, I will give this land. So land also plays a big role in the book of Ruth. The proper inheritance and handing down of land is very important in the Bible. Land was never to be separated from its original owner or its descendants. It was simply passed down through the line. And this truth lies behind many of the Bible's laws and narratives. We see it in the division of property between Lot and Abraham. When Lot chooses the plain of the Jordan River and Abraham remains in the land of Canaan, which is the land of promise, there was the claims of the daughters of Tezeshelphad, who gained the right to inherit the land when their father died without sons. This was in Numbers chapter 27. There was the laws of the Jubilee years when the land was returned to its original owner. And there was the judgment that fell on King Ahab and Queen Jezebel for having Naboth killed so that they could get his vineyard, which had been in his family for years. He was refusing to give it up. So they killed him. So land is a big deal. If you ever want to do a study on your own about the significance of land, it will be a very rich and fruitful study for you. So all of these references to the land link the story of Ruth right back to the covenant theme on a personal level and on a national level. So Boaz, after he gets the okay from the other kinsman redeemer to buy the land, then he introduces the second condition that he must also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the wife of the dead man. The redeemer would not only redeem the land, he would also have to marry Ruth to raise up the name for the dead. So as I mentioned before, the Redeemer was responsible for producing an heir to continue the line of the deceased. But this kinsman Redeemer is not down for this deal. He says, I will ruin my inheritance. So redeeming Ruth and producing an heir for the line of Elimelech would damage his own children's inheritance. So he already had a family to tend to, adding Ruth to it was a little bit more than he was bargaining for. So he removed his sandal and this indicated his decision to pass his right of redemption on to Boaz. Some commentators say that when there is the removal of the sandal, it's tied back to Abraham because when God gave him the promise of the land in the book of Genesis, he told him to walk the length and the width of it and everywhere that his foot touched would be his. So The removing of the sandal and handing it over in the redemption of land symbolized everywhere that your foot touched in the land that you were redeeming or buying. So after the kinsman redeemer, the first one, says, I'm out, then finally Boaz can go and move along with Ruth. 
And in verse 11, the elders and the townspeople, so there are all these people present during this time, pray that the Lord would make Ruth like Rachel and Leah. Now, what in the world does that mean, right? (laughs) So you have to know your scriptures, which even if you're reading a small book like um, the book of Ruth, you have to know what's going, what has gone on previously to understand what's taking place right now. So although lineage is established through men, it's the women who take responsibility for continuing that lineage. So in a sense, women serve as guardians of lineage in the Bible. It's many times the women who, despite their husband's protests or missteps or mess ups or ignorance, it is the women who ensure that the birth of the next generation happens in accordance with the proper line of inheritance. Let me give you a few examples. Sarah was barren at first, and she knew that there was a promised seed to come. So in order to move it along, even though she was wrong in this instance, she provided a surrogate mother, Hagar, for Abraham. But later, she was the one who would bear her own son, the promised seed, Isaac. And this was where God's stamp of approval came, because it was him, not Ishmael, who was the designated heir. Then there was Isaac's wife, Rebecca. Many people down Rebecca because she was the one who helped Jacob dress up and deceive his father. But what she was doing was really honorable because she was trying to guide that promised seed away from Esau, who really had no regard for his place in the family line, and towards Jacob, which is really what God wanted in the first place. Rebecca concocted this whole plan because she had a regard and a respect for the family line more than Isaac did. In the stories of Jacob's wives, Leah and Rachel, the issue was not so much about which son would be heir because they were all the children of Israel. So Leah and Rachel helped to build up the foundation for the nation of Israel by having all of these children. So their jealousy really fueled um, the fire for building a dynasty for God. He used something negative for his own good. So Rachel was initially barren and she was jealous of Leah's ability to bear children. So she gave a maid servant to Jacob for this purpose, just like Sarah did with Abraham. And then when Leah wasn't having kids, she had her maid servant go in and have children for Abraham, further building up the nation of Israel. And it went on and on until Leah and Rachel provided Jacob with 12 sons and one daughter, who in turn fathered the 12 tribes who became the people of Israel. So Ruth was linked to Rachel and Leah by the townspeople who blessed her as they witnessed Boaz's redemption of Ruth and of the land of Elimelech and Malon. They said in Ruth chapter 411, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built up the house of Israel. And then they add something that you also have to be aware of from the book of Genesis. They say, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So who's Perez? Who's Tamar? Who's Judah, right? (laughs) So you have to go all the way back to the book of Genesis to get the framework and context for this. So the story of Tamar and Judah is also a story of a family whose line was 
protected by one determined woman. So Tamar gave birth to twins, Perez and Zara, after she dressed up as a prostitute to seduce her father-in-law, Judah, because Judah failed to make good on his promise to give her his youngest son, Sheila, as a husband after his two older sons had died while married to her. So she had married his two older sons. They passed away. So according to the Levite law, the next son in line was to marry her to continue the legacy of the brothers. But Judah said, oh, no, she must be a black widow because my sons keep dying. So I'm not giving her another son. So she said, oh, OK, so the promised seed is not going to come. She felt the need to protect the promised seed. So she did something which sounds crazy to us, dressing up like a prostitute, having sex with her father-in-law to continue the line. But that's exactly what she did. The references in the book of Ruth to Rachel, Leah, and Tamar not only serve to sort of welcome Ruth into the community of the tribe of Judah, but they also link her with the mothers of the nation of Israel. So she was like those heroic women who went before her to ensure that the preservation of the people of Israel happened. Thanks to Ruth, Naomi's family survives. The child that was born to Ruth and Boaz is a son born to Naomi who will renew her, that's Naomi's, life. For Naomi, Ruth is better than seven sons because she produces what Naomi's sons failed to produce, and that is an heir to continue the royal line. So in all of this, Ruth is doing something very powerful. She's establishing herself as a sort of anti-type. So remember where the Moabites came from. Remember all those references to Ruth the Moabite? Ruth is securing herself or making herself an anti-type of Lot's daughters and of the Moabite women at Baal Peor because she plays against the type. So she is fulfilling the history of Moab by reversing it. So listen, stay with me. With her actions, she reversed the original story of Moab in Genesis 19. Lot's daughter seduced her father while he slept and conceived Moab. And then Ruth, Naomi's daughter-in-law, doesn't seek to seduce an elder man while he sleeps, which would be Boaz. He's honorable enough to help her to behave righteously. And also, I think it was in her to behave righteously. She was not... Um, We don't see her in any way act like the Moabite women from which she descended. So what we have here is a restoration of the Moabite people because of what Ruth does. Ruth redeems Moab, not only by reversing the role of the seductive woman of Numbers 25. These are the women who were sent out to the Israelite men to seduce them. But she also reversed the acts of Lot's daughter in Genesis 19. And there's even more than that. She's an anti-type of Tamar as well. So Tamar dressed herself as a prostitute, went into her father so so that she could get her son. So both Tamar and Ruth dressed up, approached a man who was older than them to get a son. But Ruth does it in a righteous way. There's no deception in what she's doing. And if you notice, Tamar is in the same divinic genealogy as Ruth. Judah did have other sons, but it's Perez and Zerah, the sons of Tamar, from him 
sons of incest, those are the ones that are included in the royal genealogies all the way to Jesus. Tamar is the savior of Judah's seed, and so is Ruth. Do you see that? They worked to ensure that the royal line would continue because without them, it would have stopped. So remember what Naomi thought God was doing in her life in the beginning? She thought that God had dealt her a bitter hand, but we see that God is reversing all of that. He has reversed all of that in chapter four. Naomi complained that Yahweh had dealt bitterly with her, but the women of the town point out that Yahweh has been with her the whole time and has provided a redeemer for her. And this redeemer is the son who would continue the lineage of Naomi and her late husband. He will be a restorer of your life. So Naomi's life would now be restored because her lineage could continue through Ruth and Boaz's child. And then an added bonus, this son would provide for Naomi as she got older because she lost a husband and she lost sons. She had no one to provide for her. But this son through Boaz would help to provide for her. And we've already seen that Boaz has already stepped up to provide for her because through Ruth, he had given Naomi so much. When the people say that Ruth is better to Naomi than seven sons, it's a very strong statement that they're saying sons were very valuable in the family in the ancient Near East community because they passed the family name along. They were the ones who carried the seed. And the number seven is symbolic of completeness. So in Ruth, she found so much value than she could have even more than she could have had if she had seven sons. And the book closes with a short genealogy that covers the line from Perez to David. And we also see this genealogy repeated in First Chronicles chapter two, verses four through 15. And in Matthew chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Now, interesting note is in verse 21, and it says, And Salmon fathered Boaz. So if we go back and look at the family tree of Boaz, Boaz's mother was Rahab, the prostitute who hid the Israelite spies in Joshua chapter 2, and who delivered Jericho when it was destroyed. So it's easy to see how Boaz could have been so gracious to Ruth because his mother was once an outsider to the Israelite community, but who was grafted in by faith and who came to live for the one true and living God, Yahweh. And as a result, she's included in Jesus's family tree. Talk about redemption and restoration on so many levels. So this family tree at the end of the book of Ruth reveals a very important story. Obed was King David's grandfather. Obed's birth does not just put a nice bow on this story of Naomi and Ruth. It shows a greater truth that the redemption of Ruth ultimately leads to the birth of King David, which ultimately leads to the birth of Jesus, the true king. And interesting side note that this genealogy of Ruth in chapter four has 10 names same as the 10 named genealogies in Genesis 5 and Genesis chapter 11. So just the fact that it has 10 names is pointing us back to the book of Genesis. Author and theologian Peter Lightheart, who was one of my absolute favorites, he writes, all his kindness to Naomi is mediated through Ruth, Naomi's Moabite surrogate. Through his attentions to Ruth, he provides bread for Naomi. He agrees to spread the wing of his robe over Ruth and so provides a son to Naomi. 
He saves the Hebrew Naomi by redeeming the Gentile Ruth. The typological redemption of Ruth follows this pattern. Naomi, the Jewish widow, is bereft. The Gentile daughter Ruth joins her. Naomi gets a redeemer when Boaz attaches himself to Ruth. Some great insight there from Peter Lightheart. So at the end of Ruth, the themes of land and family, they are all joined together. Boaz reunited the family with his land by redeeming Elimelech's land when he married Ruth, the widow of Elimelech's son, Malon. And the story just comes full circle. The family that left its land and had no descendants returns to its homeland and gets an heir and a father to continue the legacy. Peter Leithart, I want to read one more thing he shared about the book Ruth. He said, the gospel of Ruth is summed up in this. All nations shall be blessed in you, and so all Israel shall be saved. And that's the heart of God today, is that all of Israel, the, the Jews as well as the Gentiles, will be saved. So that's what's happening today. We are grafted in, we're included in that umbrella of salvation. So the beginning of the book is set when the judges ruled. And at the end of the book, generations later, we're taken to King David. This book serves as a bridge between the book of Judges when there was lawless, when there was no king, when everyone did was right in their own eyes. And it points us forward to where God's monarchy will be set up, where he will rule through the king that he has appointed. The kingless situation that starts at the beginning of the book is wrapped up at the end of the book with one word, and that's the name of David. Well, that's it for the book of Ruth. I pray that you got some insight that you had never thought about before. I pray that you'll be encouraged to dig deeper for yourself. There's so much more in the book of Ruth that we have not even covered. I feel like we've just really scratched the surface of the book of Ruth. It's only four chapters, but it's a mighty book and it has so many layers. So I encourage you to go back on your own, read the book of Ruth all the way through again, and you'll be surprised at the insight that you will get. So this Thursday, we will be gathering for our last chat in the Unfolding Words Facebook group. Join me Thursday, October 3rd, this Thursday after the podcast drops at 9 p.m. Eastern Time at 6 p.m. Pacific Time in the Unfolding Words Facebook group. If you haven't joined, you have to answer just a few questions and you'll be in there and you can come get some feedback about the Book of Ruth, share insight about the Book of Ruth. And if you are just joining us, as I mentioned, you can still get the Bible study workbook and walk through the Bible study on your own. The audio will be available for you to listen to at your convenience. You can go to Amazon.com and purchase the workbook, Harvest of Kindness, a Bible study of Ruth, and work through that and answer the questions. And I would love for you to offer feedback even after the study is over. You can catch me on Twitter at unfolding underscore words or on Instagram and Facebook at Unfolding Words. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for joining me for this study of Ruth. I will be back next week talking more about the beauty of God's word. Pray that you have a wonderful week. I'll see you back here next Monday. Until then, may God's word be a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. God bless you.